jot that down in your communication card before you um, turn it back in a little bit later, okay? So um, put that in parentheses, and then as you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 4, let me ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and join me in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you are at work. Thank you that you are a speaking God, a living God, that you are moving, that you are present here with us. And so, Lord, whatever else happens today, whatever else we think, whatever, whoever else we encounter and talk to and listen to, uh, above all, uh, we are here to encounter you and to listen to what you have to say. And so whatever needs to be cleared out of our uh, distracted uh, lives in order for that to happen, uh, do that work through your spirit. Uh, we invite you in. We invite you to do that. Uh, we uh, will actively participate in that work with you. And Lord, we ask you to be pleased as we uh, engage with your word today, uh, that we are worshiping you not only in this moment, but that we are preparing uh, to be worshipers of you um, in the week to come as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to... Uh, uh, invite you to read with me 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll begin reading at chapter 6. Uh, we're concluding our series on a walk on the dark side today, and we're looking at this idea of loneliness. And what we're going to see here is uh, just a, a fascinating, very, very, very personal uh, side of Paul. This is a very personal Paul. And uh, a little bit of context for you as we're reading these words. Paul is facing the end of his life. He is in prison. Uh, he will not be uh, free again, as far as we know, uh, and uh, he will soon be executed. So uh, th those are all part of the reality of Paul as he's writing these words. So, so listen to this. As for me, he says, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that great day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his glorious return. Please come as soon as you can. Uh, Damas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Kraskins has gone to Galatia, and Titus has gone to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, uh, when you come, be sure to bring the coat I left with Carpus at Troas. Also, bring my books and especially my papers. Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm, but the Lord will judge him for what he has done. Be careful of him, for he fought against everything we said. Uh, the first time I was brought before the judge, no one was with me. Everyone had abandoned me. I hope it will not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and gave me strength that I might preach the good news in all of its fullness to all the Gentiles to hear. 
and he saved me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we'll uh, conclude our reading of God's word. So as we uh, look at that text, I want to suggest that we get an impression of Paul's loneliness from two perspectives. Uh, There is a sort of a negative perspective and a positive perspective. Uh, The negative perspective is, Paul says, everyone has left me. Everyone has abandoned me. And on the positive side, he's saying, uh, I want you, uh, Timothy, to come to me quickly. I want want you to be here. I need you to be here. So everyone has left me, and I need you to be here. Uh, And uh, what we're seeing in this text here at the very end of Paul's life is this very close, intimate look at the heart of the Apostle. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul is known for a keen, sharp, uh, brilliant mind. He's known for his tremendous learning. He's somebody who is known for his great persuasiveness, his great courage. He's known for this rugged persistence in the face of all sorts of obstacles. And here, what we're seeing is this very, very personal, very intimate look at the heart of the Apostle Paul. And what we see here is a man who is struggling to keep loneliness at bay. And maybe you've been in that place yourself. Maybe you know something about that struggle. When do you find yourself most in the place of loneliness? Um, Maybe you find yourself in the place of loneliness in the wake of a divorce or in a time of significant illness. Maybe uh, it's a season of an empty nest where the house that was once full and active uh, now seems suddenly quiet. Maybe it is after retirement and all of the relationships that you had in the workplace and all of the sense of significance and engagement that you enjoyed, all of that just seems to have gone away and you find yourself feeling very, very alone. Maybe uh, it's a move to a new community. Maybe you're recently uh, relocated here to Midland. Maybe you're about to move to another place and you know that uh, in the midst of that transition, in the midst of that move, there will be a season where you just are not connected to people and you know that you will be drawn into a place of loneliness. Maybe you're the sort of person who even finds yourself feeling a little bit lonely even in a crowd of people. You can sit in a room, you can sit in a group, You can be at a table, and you can still feel very alone. You can still feel lonely, as though you're not understood, as though you're not accepted, as though you're not loved. So this morning, uh, if any of that connects with you, uh, I want to suggest that we're going to see two things. We're going to look at two aspects of loneliness that surface here in this text, and then we're going to see the two responses. So two aspects, uh, two features, two versions of loneliness, and then a response. So the first feature is this. There's an outward nature to loneliness. Paul here finds himself, as we said, at the very end of his life's journey. Uh, And uh, as he is standing there at the, the end of the story of his life, he is facing a whole array of external circumstances Right? All sorts of things that are outside of himself that 
uh, any one of which would qualify you to feel lonely. Any one of which would do the trick. And Paul isn't just facing one of these. He's got all of them together. And so Paul is a prisoner. Um, as a prisoner, his uh, social life is restricted. His movement is restricted. His ability to connect with people is restricted. He spends a significant amount of his time literally alone. Uh, not only is he a prisoner, but he is a prisoner facing execution. He knows that his death is coming. He knows that the end of his life is approaching. And there's a certain loneliness that comes uh, for each one of us as we know that we step through that moment of death by ourselves. Uh, he's been disappointed by friends. He's faced, in fact, some bitter, very, very uh, deep disappointment with some friends, sometimes long-time friends, trusted friends, dear friends who have turned against him, who have abandoned him. He says, Damis has deserted him, and it's a painful blow. Other friends and colleagues that he has in his life, at various seasons in his life, have for, no, um, for nothing negative, nothing is wrong, they haven't done anything wrong, but the season of life has moved on, and people have moved on. Friends like Kreskins and Titus and Tychicus, Erasmus and Trophius, who is ill. Uh, life just keeps moving. Life keeps grinding along. And the chapter, the act, the moment that Paul finds himself in here is different than the previous act. It isn't the same characters as the previous chapter. All of that is happening, and there's opposition. Uh, there's antagonism. He says that Alexander uh, has come against him forcefully, and that that opposition has been painful. And then he comes to maybe one of the most poignant verses that Paul ever writes, and he says the first time that he stands before the judge, he stands there alone. He's hauled in front of the Roman emperor, and he stands there by himself. And the reason that he's by himself, it, sounds, it, it almost sounds as if he expected that there would be others there, that he thought that there would be other uh, friends of his, other supporters in the gal in the gallery with him, but he stands alone. He says, for some reason, they've all abandoned me. They're all gone. At the end of his life's work, a life spent investing in people and sharing with people and traveling to people and caring for people, at the end of all of that, he stands finally alone. If anybody is a candidate for loneliness, it's Paul. But notice what he does. Notice how he responds to that in the face of loneliness, and betrayal, and abandonment, imprisonment. How does he respond? What does he do for us? He tells his story. What he does is he tells his story. It's when he is most threatened with loneliness that Paul gets most intimate and most vulnerable. Uh, it's the opposite of what we do. It's the opposite of how we operate. We function as though vulnerability and authenticity will make us lonely. If I'm vulnerable, if I'm authentic, if I show you who I really am, if you see what my struggles really are, you'll reject me, you'll leave me, and then I'll be alone. And we act as though authenticity and vulnerability will produce loneliness. And Paul says, no, no. 
authenticity and vulnerability are the solution to loneliness. What Paul says is it's the solution. It's the cure. And so he gets very personal. Perhaps some of the most personal, poignant words that Paul writes anywhere in Scripture. He uses very emotionally heavy language when he says, Damas has deserted me. That's a powerful term. There are emotionally neutral, just generically descriptive ways that Paul could describe that departure. And we know them. We do that too. Damas uh, is no longer here. Uh, When I uh, was a little kid, I remember my my mom um, would train us how to answer the telephone. Right, if she couldn't come to the phone, if she was in the shower, or right, if she had just run to the store a second, she didn't want anybody to know that, right? So you answer the phone, and what do you say? My mom isn't available right now, right? It's just very neutral, right? It doesn't give any information. So Paul has that available to him. He could say, Damus isn't available to me right now. Neutral. Damus has gone on elsewhere. Neutral. But he isn't neutral. He's loaded. He's poignant. He's raw. He says, Damas has deserted me. He was a friend. He was a colleague. I trusted him. I needed him. He's gone. The coppersmith, he says, has done me much harm. The coppersmith has wounded me. The coppersmith has come against me. In opposition, we see some vulnerability. He's expressing the pain, the fear, the struggle in the face of that opposition. And then there's a sense that it's something of a struggle to leave that in God's hands. He wants to put it in God's hands. He says, God will be the judge. God will deal with this. God will handle it. And then he comes back. He says, but you be careful because he's not a good guy. And it's almost as if he's struggling uh, to put this into God's hands finally and to let it be and to let it rest. He shares uh, his inner struggle. And then he repeats twice this idea as he stands at trial. No one came to help me. And in the original Greek language, that's emphasized. Uh, No one, there was no one who came to help me. And then everyone abandoned me. It's highlighted. It's in bold face. No one. Everyone. No one. Everyone. It's raw. It's painful. He's exposed. And then he says clearly what he needs. He doesn't see it as a sign of weakness to say, this is what I need. He doesn't see it as something that's wrong to say that this is what I need. But he just simply says, what I need, Timothy, is for you to come. I need you to be here. I need you to be with me. I know that you're praying for me. I know that there are people around the world that are praying for me. I know that I have your good support, but I need you to be here. I know it's a big ask but would you come quickly? 
He says what he needs. And then in a very personal detail, which, by the way, is one of the details that argues really strongly that this is an authentic letter from the Apostle Paul. Um, uh, in a very personal detail, he says, and would you please bring along my coat? I left it behind. We left in a hurry. Uh, I need my coat. This prison cell is getting chilly at night. Please bring my coat and my books and my letters. Would you do that for me? I need that, especially now. You get a glimpse of Paul's heart, his vulnerability, his needs. And then he is honest with his own life assessment. Uh, He knows that his own death is approaching, and he steps back, and we are privy to his own inner thoughts about how his life has gone. And he says, I'm satisfied. I've done well. I've run the race. I've fought the fight. I've, I've, I've remained faithful. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus put that crown on my head and welcome me into my home. The end of his life, Paul doesn't give us, finally, a deep, profound, rigorous theological treatise. This is not a doctrinal tour de force. This is Paul struggling against loneliness, letting us see his heart, letting us see his hurts, his fears, his dreams. One of the things that psychologists tell us about loneliness today is that loneliness, at its deepest core, is really a loss of intimacy. And one of the things that I have come to believe about intimacy is that it's a lifelong work of integrating all of who we are into a whole. Here's what I mean by that. If you think about the way that most of us live our lives, uh, you can think about three concentric circles. The outside circle, the outer shell, we might call that our public self. This is the version of who we are that we present to the world. Uh, It's the version of who we are that uh, shows up at the restaurant and at the bank and at our jobs, uh, shows up for an interview, often shows up at church, And if you were to think about who is your public self, your public persona, uh, you could probably describe that individual with some detail. And if you can't describe that individual with detail, uh, there's somebody in your life that can describe that for you. That's our public self. And then inside of that circle is uh, a private self. This is the version of who you are that fewer people get to see. This is the version of who you are that your spouse sees, that your kids see, that your parents see, uh, maybe your closest colleagues, your closest friends. This is the version of who you are uh, when people know um, uh, some of your idiosyncrasies, when you're not working so hard to present yourself in the most flattering light. And you know what that looks like. You know what those descriptions are, and you know how they're different from your public self. 
And then the inner circle, the, the deepest level of ourselves. Uh, we might call that our private self, our secret self, rather. And our secret self is the version of who we are that nobody knows. Uh, this is the version of who we are uh, that stays locked away inside my own head, and in my own heart. This is where my greatest fears are, my darkest sins, my most bitter disappointments, and sometimes my greatest hopes and my dearest dreams, things that I never speak out loud. And one of the things that I've become convinced of as I see examples like this and others is that the work of integrating all three of those selves, public, private, and secret, so that increasingly I'm living a life that is free from secrets. Increasingly I'm living my life that is free from a public persona that's different from who I am. The work of integrating myself into one whole person is the key to having the intimate relationships and connections that Paul is describing here. We're seeing Paul's certainly private self and perhaps even his secret self as he reveals his needs and his fears and his pains and his struggles. There's a work that we do as we face these external dynamics of loneliness. When we are most drawn to a space of loneliness, we have the option, we have the ability to say, um, instead of basking in that, instead of giving into that, instead of dwelling in that space, uh, we can say, mm, I'm going to do the work of moving towards people, connecting with people, being vulnerable, being intimate, being genuine, and overcoming that spirit of loneliness. There's a second dynamic to loneliness. We'll do this one very quickly. And that is an internal struggle. There's an internal version of loneliness. I want you to see again in verse 7 what Paul says. Uh, he talks about having fought the good fight. He's fought the good fight. The word fight that he uses there uh, is, is a word that shows up in the Greek descriptions of a wrestling match. Paul is talking about wrestling. And the word uh, is the word that we get our uh, English word agony from. Paul is saying uh, there's an agony uh, to this fight. There's an agony to this life. So when Paul is saying that life is a struggle, what is he saying? What does he mean? Uh, most of us, when we say life is a struggle, what we're saying is, you know, some version of the quip, life is hard and then you die, right? Something really depressing like that. Life is just a hard grind. It's difficult. It's, it's hard to do, right? It's disappointing. Life is hard. Uh, that's not what he's saying when he's talking about living uh, in this wrestling match, living in this agony. He's not talking about life is hard. Uh, in the day that Paul uh, is writing, everybody's life is hard. Uh, he doesn't have to write that specially. Uh, what he's saying is the Christian life, 
is hard. The life uh, of a follower of Jesus is a hard life. There's a deliberate struggle that happens. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, you're struggling against something that most people don't struggle against. You wrestle with something that most people don't wrestle against. Paul uses this idea of a uh, of a struggle, of a wrestling match, of an athlete uh, in a number of different places. Back in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, he, he says that uh, the Christian life is a struggle. It's like a, uh, it's an athlete who is in, a, uh, is in a training program. If you've ever been in a training program, right? I know many of you are runners, and there's a, there's a, there's a regimen to your training, right? Especially if there's a specific... Um, race that you are getting ready for, if you know there's a run coming up that's on your schedule, you know something about uh, how many miles you need to be doing each day, how often you need to be resting, how you need to be eating, your diet, your uh, training, uh, all of that is a part of your regimen, it's a part of your discipline, and you give yourself to that discipline. And what Paul is saying is, when an athlete comes across something uh, that looks like a delicious dessert, Right, And the athlete has to say, oh, that looks so good. I think I'll just eat that. And then they say, no, I'm giving myself to something else. And so I say no to that delicious-looking dessert. Or it's cold and rainy and nasty outside. I don't think I'll run today. And you say, no, I'm going to go outside anyway. It's a discipline. It's a struggle. And what Paul is saying is that when we follow Jesus, when we live a life of a follower of Jesus, we have a struggle. There's a, there's a battle that we undertake. And as, a, as, a, uh, as an athlete is constantly saying no to the natural impulses of self, uh, Paul says uh, that the follower of Jesus has to do that as well. And, and he uses the term self-control. And when Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, this idea of self-control, he uses the word that literally means ego control. It's I have to control my ego. I have to control the I. That's why the Christian life, he says, is a struggle. That's why there's an agony. That's what we wrestle with. We wrestle with the ego. So let me give you two passages from two theologians about this. The first one is from Martin Luther, great reformer, theologian. He says this uh, in his lectures on the Romans. He says, due to our original sin, our nature is so deeply curved in on itself that it fails to realize In this wicked, twisted, and crooked way, it seeks all things, including God, for itself. So that's the ego. It's turned in on itself. And it it comes and says it's it's ravenous. The ego is ravenous, and it wants to use everything, even God, for self. it will grab a hold of everything, every resource, every relationship, and say, how can I use this for my benefit, my selfish interest? Jonathan Edwards comes along, another um, great theologian from history, and he says this. He says a a very similar thing, but just a little bit differently. He says, after the fall or sin, (coughs) the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and extensiveness and then he says, to an exceeding diminution and confinedness. So it gets small. But man's soul was under, before, man's soul was under the noble principle of divine love, 
whereby it was, as it were, enlarged to the comprehension of all its fellow creatures. But as soon as we sinned, all of this excellent enlargedness of soul was gone, and he shrank to a little point circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of others, and now wholly governed by narrow, selfish principles. What is he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, whenever you go into any relationship, whenever you go into any interaction, whenever you uh, have any activity, whenever you have a resource in front of you, you have one of two operating systems that you can choose from. The first operating system says, this is um, uh, your life, your resources for me. We say it to people. We say it to strangers. We say it to family members. We say it to our churches. We say it to God. Your life, your resources for me. My ego demands that I consume that for my own interests. The other, the other operating system is my life, my resources for you. You get into any situation, and you'll find yourself picking one of those two operating systems. How do I use these people? How do I, use, how do I get their resources in order to serve me and to serve my interests? And sometimes, sometimes that's a very tricky thing to recognize. Sometimes it's very, very subtle. I want to use you because I, I, I need to feel needed. I'm going to use you because I need uh, to... Uh, to have you uh, care for me and take care of me. Uh, it can be very, very subtle. I will use you or I will give my life. I will give my resources to serve you. Your life for mine or my life for yours. Those are the two systems. We pick between those two systems. And what, what Edwards is saying and what Luther is saying, what Paul is saying, what Jesus says is... That that first operating system, the selfish one, how do I get your life and your resources to serve me? That's the natural one. That's, that's where we naturally exist. It's deep within us, and it will happen automatically unless we wrestle against it, unless we struggle against it. If you don't struggle against it, if you go with that operating system, this is what he says happens. You know, I'll get into a relationship, and I'll stay in that relationship as long as it's serving my needs. When you do that, you become smaller. You become smaller and smaller. You're shrinking. You're curving in on yourself. You're becoming less and less. You're less and less able to imagine what it's like to be somebody else, what it's like to be connected to somebody else. You're less and less able to love somebody else, less and less able to get out of yourself. You become harder and smaller and smaller and lonelier and lonelier. And what Paul says, what Paul tells us, is that he has wrestled. Sometimes it's an agony. But he's chosen the second operating system. What Paul says is, I have poured my life out. My life has not been about, here's my vessel, I need to fill it up with as much as I can. What Paul says is, I have poured my life out. My life has already been poured out. I've poured my life out. And what he says is, when I expend myself, when I pour myself out, when it's my life for you, 
the more I give myself away, the larger I become. The bigger I get. You see that? The more I pour myself out, the more confident I am, the more whole I become, the more complete I become, the more connected I become. The more I give myself away, the more I pour myself up. So how does he do that? How is he able to pour himself out like that without resentment and without calling attention? How does he pour himself out like that? Well, because he knows the one who has poured himself out for Paul. He knows the one uh, who has poured himself out for Paul. Paul is pouring his life out for the purpose of the gospel because the one who stands at the center of the gospel has already poured his life out for Paul. He's pouring his life out. It's so evident. It's so evident in these moments as Paul's life is coming to an end. Uh, in this moment that John Stott calls Paul's Gethsemane. It's not just evident that God exists. Paul isn't saying, I'm okay. I'm okay because I know God exists somewhere. I believe theoretically that God is out there somewhere. He isn't just saying, I believe that God exists. And he's not just saying, uh, I believe um, uh, in, in, uh, that, that, that I will see God someday. It isn't just that. But when Paul, is, when Paul is talking about gospel, when Paul is talking about pouring himself out for gospel, what he's talking about is something far, far deeper, something far bigger, something far more cosmic than that. Uh, what Paul says is that this, there's a reversal of sin that is happening. That sin is being rolled back. Um, think all the way back uh, to the Tower of Babel. Think about how it is that the sinful hearts and minds of people uh, ended with them being completely scattered and fractured. And what he's saying is, now the gospel is putting people back together again. From that scattered, fractured humanity at Babel that's persisted all through history up until this point, now he says, here I am. I'm Paul, and I am sent by God to speak to the Gentiles. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the scattered ones. And my ministry and my calling is to see the reconciliation of the gospel worked out uh, in these people. But even beyond, further beyond, back uh, from the Tower of Babel, I'll go all the way back to the garden. And at the garden we see that, that humanity lived in this moment of friendship and companionship and intimacy and connection with God, and then that's lost. And humanity is sent out from the garden. Adam and Eve are expelled from the presence of God. And ever since that moment when humanity is expelled from the presence of God, what happens? People can't stand in God's holy presence. So if you think about Moses up on the mountaintop, right? They have to go through all sorts of gestures and all sorts of exercises to keep people away from God's presence. If they get too close to the mount uh, where, where God is living, if they get too close to Sinai, they die. And Moses himself goes up the mountain, but he's not allowed to even look at God. He has to hide behind some rocks and, and, and face away from God. And God passes by him. He can't look at God. He can't be in the presence of God. Think about the Holy of Holies and all 
all of the rituals and all of the, the rigmarole that they had to go through for one person in one moment to come into the place of holies of holies where God's presence was. And everybody else had to steer clear of that space. You can't go into the presence of God or you die. And now what Paul says is, I'm standing before the Roman emperor and everybody else is gone. Everyone else has abandoned me. But God is standing with me. I'm standing in the presence of God. He uses some really interesting language there. Now, he says, God is caring for me. God is helping me. And when he describes that, he's using some very specific words. Uh, how many of you work in the medical profession in some way? How many medical people here? All right. Like most of the group, right. So uh, he's using a word for caring for somebody's wounds. This is not just Jesus coming to lecture Paul or to teach Paul or to instruct him in some way, but this is God standing with Paul, caring for his wounds, healing his wounds, tending to his brokenness. This is God being a friend to Paul. You say, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that we can go from Mount Sinai, terrifying, smoke, fire, earthquake, stay away or you die. Don't go into the Holy of Holies. Don't do it. You're kicked out of the garden. Don't go into the presence of God. It will kill you. How do you go from that to God is there caring for my wounds? What's the difference? What's happened? And here's what happens. It's that Jesus also went to a Gethsemane. Jesus was also betrayed. Jesus was also abandoned. Jesus was also imprisoned. Jesus was also put to death by the Roman government. Jesus was mistreated. Jesus ultimately was alone. But Jesus' aloneness goes one step further than Paul's. Jesus' aloneness, Jesus doesn't stand there on the cross and say, everybody else has abandoned me. Jesus isn't in the garden saying, uh, the disciples have fallen asleep. I needed you to be with me. Jesus isn't saying, in my loneliness, in my aloneness, at least God is there. Jesus' loneliness goes one more step. And Jesus' loneliness is, even God, even my Father, even this relationship that I've had for all eternity, for a moment, is taken away. Jesus' loneliness is absolute. Why? Because Jesus isn't just dying. Jesus is dying for you. Jesus is taking the full weight, the full sting of loneliness, of death, of sin. He's taking it all so that when you and I stand, and we have those experiences of being abandoned, of being alone, of being betrayed, of facing our own death. We stand with God, never leaving us, never forsaking us. 
Have you embraced Jesus as your friend? Do you know what it is for Jesus to care for you, to stand with you in those places of aloneness so that you don't become lonely? When Jesus stands with you because Jesus died for you, then, then you have the power to choose the second operating system. Then you have the ability to say, because Jesus' life was poured out for me, I pour my life out for you. Then I experience the largeness, the grandeur, the fullness, the bigness of life that we were designed to experience. Will you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking to us um, in very personal ways. Thank you for your servant, Paul. Thank you for the ways that Paul was able to give voice to the struggle that uh, we face and at the same time uh, draw our eyes to you. Lord, for those of us who are here today who have never known what it is to stand with you in our presence, for you to heal us and care